They called me many things. Monster, the man without a soul, Hammer Man. But was I really responsible for all that I was accused of? My name is Henry Spencer, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode is for Mandy. Mandy has been a supporter since the early days and likes the scary stories. Also, some of my activities, if you believe everything you read or hear, were most certainly not for children or those who may be sensitive about acts of violence. If that is you, go ahead and turn this off now. For those of you still with me, here is my story. Let me jump around a bit, so try to keep up. Some of what I will share is not from my memories, but from what was written about my exploits. I was born sometime around 1879 or 1880 in Chicago. My childhood wasn't the best. I'm not using it as an excuse, I'm just telling you. One newspaper would say that my real father was a day laborer and a drunk who killed himself. They also said I had two sisters that did the same. But honestly, I didn't know them. Hell, I'm not even sure what my real name is. My mother shipped me off when I was young to the Home for Friendless Boys. Can you imagine such a place with a name like the Home for Friendless Boys? I later got adopted by a woman made me sell newspapers on the street corner all day long. First time I got arrested and sentenced was for stealing a suit of clothes. I don't even remember why I tried to steal them, but I guess I did and I got sent away for it. I was in and out of prisons for most of my early years. Later, when the stories of my activities started to make the news, People came out of the woodwork and tried to claim they knew more about me than they did. One guy, a prison guard named Baxter, who was a guard at the Joliet Prison where starting around age 17, I spent eight years, made up a bunch of stuff about me to get his name in the papers, calling me a bully and cringing coward and all that. Baxter got one thing right. I got put to work in the hardest job at the prison, in the chair factory. That was where I discovered the one thing I could truly count on in this world. My hammer. I had to knock the chairs apart for shipment. And in doing so, develop what they call a hammer arm. Kind of like the hind leg of a mule. I didn't know much going into prison, but I learned a lot while I was in new ways of committing crimes. I was never a big man, five foot seven inches, maybe 145 pounds, but I had strong arms and could swing a hammer or snuff the life out of someone by squeezing their neck until they breathed no more. The newspapers could be a little rough. One referred to me as a weak-faced little man with rat eyes. 
Anyway, you want to hear about the killing that did me in, don't you? Well, I'm not saying this is what happened best as I can recall, but this is what the authorities say happened. In the fall of 1913, I met a woman named Mildred Allison Rex wrote at a dance hall at the San Sosi Amusement Park, which used to be at 60th and Cottage Grove on Chicago's south side. The craze at the time was this Argentinian dance called the tango, and Mildred, she was a tango teacher. She was 37 at the time, had three sons, and had divorced the boy's father, a barber. I guess she preferred being out dancing to staying home and taking care of those kids. Mildred had a little side of grifter to her because she got married again right away to a farm boy from Macomb, Illinois, and tried to get that Rube's father to loan them money. When the father refused, she headed back to Chicago, which is where we started up. I convinced Mildred I was set to inherit money from my wealthy father, so I I think she had dollar signs in her eyes. I also told her of an opportunity to teach a class of students out west of Chicago, which would be a great way for a woman with her dancing skills to make money. Spoiler for y'all, there was no class. We took a train out of Chicago on September 28, 1913, headed west to Wayne, Illinois, just north of Wheaton, near the Fox River. We got off at the train stop. I told her I knew of a shortcut to the dance hall. With me was a hammer and a gun. Once we got far enough from the train depot, I waited till she wasn't looking, took out my hammer, and swung it toward her head. That's not what happened. All my bad deeds kind of blurred together. I had the hammer, but instead, I grabbed Mildred by the neck, put a gun to her face, and... She dropped to the ground dead. I quickly gathered up all her valuables and dragged her body up to the train tracks. I headed back to the city, and wouldn't you know it, one of the conductors that saw me and Mrs. Rex wrote saw me traveling back to Chicago all alone. What are the chances? As for putting her body on the tracks, I figured once another train ran her over, it might look like a suicide. What was I wrong? I was told later the train conductor saw the body on the tracks, but wasn't able to stop in time. The wheels cut her in half at the waist. Some newspapers claimed her body was found next to the tracks in a ravine. Either way, when they brought Mildred's body to the coroner, he could tell she was already dead when the train ran her over. He also saw the bullet hole in her cheek and knew this wasn't an accident. A few days later, some kids found a hammer near the tracks, wrapped in a cloth. The cops would later say it was mine. Suddenly I went from the guy no one cared about for most of his life to the guy hunted by as many as 100 police officers, although they didn't know who I was at first when they were looking for me. Nine days later, 
Across two counties, the cops look for the person who killed the tango teacher, the mother of three boys who may have left her first husband for being abusive. What kind of monster would have killed a woman like this? Well, cops tracked down a number of suspects, including her current husband, the Rube, her ex-husband, the Barber, and anyone else she had been seen with over the last few weeks. And how did they find me? Well, they asked around and found that Mildred had been seen with someone called Mr. Spencer that day. They talked to the train conductor, who remembered seeing me and Mrs. Retrote heading out to Wayne, but only me heading back. And there was that thing where I tried to sell some of her jewelry. I should have just laid low or got out of town, but instead I tried to cash in on the stuff I had. A woman I tried to sell Mildred's ring to called the cops, and they busted me when I showed up at her place with it on October 5th. Back in my boarding house room, they found the tango teacher's case and other items that implicated me. As the police were hauling me in, it probably would have been best if I had just kept my mouth shut, but instead I blurted out to John Halpin, the chief of detectives. You got the goods on me. I know I'll swing for this. Once those floodgates were open, I kept going. I admitted to 25, 30 more murders two cops when I was breaking into a house with a guy named Murphy, an old lady at a rooming house on Michigan Avenue, my former wife, I beat her to death and burned her body. There were two women at Delavan Lake, Wisconsin. I used my trusty hammer again on both of them and threw their bodies in the lake. A man and his wife in Fox Lake, Illinois, I threw their bodies in the lake as well. Oh yeah. There was a guy who bumped into me at 42nd Street in Indiana on the city's south side. I shot him, dragged his body into the alley, and robbed him. Two girls at Pawpaw Lake in Michigan? That was me, too. I even told them I was with Peter Niedermeyer, one of those automatic trio car barn murder guys when we robbed two farmers in Zion City. Well, I guess you'd just call it Zion, Illinois. Man, those cops thought they won the big prize arresting me. All these murders would get pinned on me. Of course, they found out I was making most of them up. Some of them were real murders that I had read about, but the cops figured out I was in prison at the time and couldn't have done them. Various assessors were brought in to see if I was crazy. Much was made of the fact that I enjoyed smoking opium, but... Honestly, I think the authorities were just trying to scare the public and help them come to grips why a deviant like me could exist in this world. Criminologists pronounced that I was one of the most remarkable criminals of recent years. Good to be recognized for your efforts, right? the cops asked me why I did it. Here's what I said. I've been in and out of prison since I was a boy. I've been hunted and hounded all my life. I'm sore at the world. My own life doesn't amount to much and nobody's life has meant much to me. 
All told, I figured my crimes amounted to $10,000 in the past year. I spent a lot of that on the ladies in the red light district on 22nd Street and on opium. My trial for allegedly killing the Rex Rope woman, well, that could have gone better. I was not a fan of the prosecutor, an attorney named Charles Hadley. My favorite thing to call him was Bonehead. I must have called him Bonehead a hundred times a day. At one point I yelled, Bonehead! Go ahead and frame up. Ask the judge to tell you some law, you bonehead. You bonehead, you don't know anything. Get some more witnesses, you bonehead. I'm pretty sure they printed that last part in the newspaper. My defense attorney wasn't much better. I didn't make things easy for him when I was asked to take the witness stand and refused to take the oath. If I recall correctly, I said, There is no God. The only friend I've got is the devil. I swear by him. My verdict was read at 7.45 on Friday, November 14th, 1913. The jury had been out about two hours. I guess the jurors wanted to get home to their families or something. Each juror was polled individually, and at the end of the trial, Judge Slusser told the clerk, file the verdict and enter a new motion for a new trial. I gotta admit, my anger at hearing this got the best of me. I jumped up and screamed at the judge, You don't need to give me any new trial. I don't ask for anything. I'm no cringing thief or burglar. I want no favors. Give me the rope. Damn you all, you bunch of rotters. I was still swearing as the guards dragged me away. After I was sentenced, I had a guy called G.M. Campbell came to visit me at the jail. He offered me $100 for my corpse after the necktie party. That's what I called a hanging. Because he was working on a new embalming fluid that would turn my body to stone. I figured, sure, either I wouldn't get hanged and I'd keep his hundred bucks, or I'd get hanged and wouldn't need this body anymore anyway. On Saturday, July 25th, 1914, the week before I was due to be hanged, I had been in my cell for ten months. I shared a few quotes with a reporter for the Chicago Tribune because everyone wanted to know what the tango teacher killer had been up to while in jail. Here's what I told him. I spent most of my time reading a Bible, which is probably good because the only person allowed to see me was a Chicago Bible school worker named Mrs. Evans. She later wrote a book about me called The Remarkable Conversion of the Man Without a Soul. had a nice ring to it. I was allowed to smoke heavy black cigars, which I did incessantly. It helped pass the time. I had been working on a blank verse funeral hymn that I planned to sing as I walked to the gallows on the big day. Don't ask me more about it. I'm going to keep it a secret until then pressed for something they could put in their newspaper, here's what I told the reporter. I am perfectly happy in the certainty that I'm to be hanged next Friday. I'm glad these lawyers have got to the end of their rope. Get that? End of their rope? I don't want any commutation of my sentence. I'm tired to death of jail life. It was Friday, July 31st, 1914, when I was led from my cell at the DuPage County Jail down a long hall brought to the newly constructed scaffold to be hanged. I was dressed in white trousers, white shoes, a white silk shirt, 
and a blue tie. Oh, and over my heart was a red rose. Here I was, Henry Spencer about to be hanged. I was 35 years old and had spent 17 of those years in Illinois prisons. Thinking back, I stood for 10 long minutes on the scaffold at the jail. In a cool, even voice, I wondered aloud whether Jesus can love a crook like me. I proclaimed my innocence for all the good that would do me. I went on to recite three long psalms from memory, and probably would have kept going if the Reverend William Evans hadn't touched me on the shoulder and began a prayer. The Reverend Evans was saying something about the mercy of God is extended to all sinners when the trap was sprung and I dropped a swift eight feet. On the way down, I may have tried to remember something about my parents or my horrible childhood or maybe some of the bad things I had done or maybe I didn't have enough time before. Even with the hood over my head and a shroud above my shoulders, those hundred or so people in the room could see the long, bloodless gash where my neck was broken. After I was hanged, a writer from the day book, that old Chicago newspaper, caught up with a Dr. Higley, who the state's attorney of DuPage County had examined me before the trial. Higley told the reporter he had originally thought I was crazy. After seeing me reciting psalms on the scaffold, I guess I convinced him because he told the reporter he was crazy. All along he was crazy and he dies as he had lived. Ben Hecht, a reporter for the Chicago Daily News that covered my hanging, got a wire from his editor that read, Omit all gruesome details. The world has just gone to war. Hecht wired back, We'll try to make hanging as cheerful and optimistic as possible. I kind of like that. One of the men on the jury who convicted me, a farmer named A.L. Sears, who lived three miles north of Wheaton, came out to see the hanging. He told the reporter, Life for a life is right. If you kill me without provocation, then you ought to be killed. I'm not saying my death was a big deal, but even the Chicago Livestock World, which called itself the world's greatest farm newspaper, carried the news of my hanging. News about me and the hogs, all in one paper. Listen, I may have done some of the bad things that they said I did and probably a few more things they never found out about, but here's something to consider. Six months after I was in the ground, there were more killings, not far from where Mildred Rexrote breathed her last breath. Seventeen miles south of Wayne, Illinois, someone had taken a killing women with a metal pipe. Three women, including the daughter of a former mayor, had all been killed by someone bashing them in the head with a pipe. Sure, I confessed to killing a lot of people, but there were some who believed I confessed because I was worried about going back to prison. I'd rather say I did something I didn't than to have to spend another day locked up. Maybe I didn't do all the things I finally swung for. It was in April 1915, long after I was dead, that Judge Kenzie Cleland of Chicago 
a representative of the Anti-Capital Punishment Society of America, made the claim that two newspaper men paid me $2 to commit the murder that eventually sent me to the gallows. Cleland said the reporters wanted to have a big newspaper scoop, so they ginned up the story with my help. This Cleveland guy also wanted hangings to be done in public so that everyone could see the true horror behind the process. Anyone who knows my story knows there were no newspaper men who paid me to do nothing. This Cleveland thing died off as quickly as it came up. So there you have it. My story is best as I can remember it with a little help from the newspapers. Be careful the next time you meet a friendly guy while dancing. You never know if he, like me, is a man without a soul. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Henry Spencer and the Tango Teacher murder. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in. And stay safe.